We are live. Ladies, gentlemen, interdimensional aliens, welcome back to the Rabbit Hole Podcast, where we do mediocre research and give our unwanted opinion on a topic that you don't care about. This week's episode, we're going to ask ourselves the question, did Adolf Hitler escape Germany in 1945? So I'll start off by giving kind of a little background here into this. So uh, let me get my dates right. I believe, it, yeah, April 1945? Correct. Yeah, 30th April 1945. Uh, Adolf Hitler commits suicide in his bunker with his wife, Eva Braun. And the... Soviets who invaded Russia or invaded Berlin uh, find his body in the bunker supposedly drag him out burn him and they claim that they have Hitler but um, the where the conspiracy kind of comes from that he survived is the fact that there was many other Nazis uh, and not just, you know, just normal soldiers or whatever in the in the military because sh- plenty of them escaped, yeah. But um, many high-ranking Nazi officials and officers escaped Germany after World War II and uh, fled to different places. And uh, that's kind of what we're going to cover here and we're going to kind of try to bring up some evidence of uh, Hitler himself escaping as well. Definitely. Old Adolf Houdini. And I think a lot of, a lot of those um, high-ranking Nazis end up in South America, too. Uh, you find a lot of them. Um, like Goring, for instance. You know, Goring was captured working in Argentina at a car dealership. Uh, I just... There's... Um, a lot, and even the even the towns. You know, in this episode, we'll cover probably we'll cover Colonial and Dignidad. Uh, we'll cover I came I can't I have to pull up my notes, but uh, La Crescente I think it's called. Um, but it's this, you know, you're in Argentina and you come across this Bavarian village. You know, there's La so Compercita. much crazy stuff. La Compercita is the name of that. La Compercita, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So much crazy stuff, just and. Just kind of an overview. All the U-boat sightings off of the South American coast in the months after the war uh, are, are are big evidence as well. But I don't know. Where do, you, where do you want to start with this? You want to start with leaving Berlin? Like, how could he have escaped Berlin? Yeah, so um, I'll go with talking about the rat lines. Yeah. And the rat lines were... Um, basically think of the Underground Railroad that we have in the United States that helped uh, the slaves escape north. Rat lines were kind of just um, smuggling routes from uh, Germany into different parts of Europe and eventually into South America. So one of the, the main ones was from Germany to Spain, and then from Spain they would get on a boat, and they would travel 
to uh, Argentina, which is the southern uh, most country in South America. Now, um, the boat thing, uh, German U-boats are famous for being untraceable and um, undetectable. So that's, um, I, I would assume that's what they would use, was probably a German U-boat to um, be able to secretly kind of uh, evade patrols and stuff like that. And so there was another one. Um, oh, another one went from Germany to Rome to Genoa. Mm -hmm. And then from Genoa, which is in Italy, to South America. Yeah, all roads, all those rat towns, I think, they all end in South America, though, correct? Yeah, South America seems to be the place where most of mm -hmm. um, well, the escape Nazis went to. And it makes sense. Cause it really does. It was a world war, right? Mm. So there was a lot of different countries and places involved in um, this war. So basically anywhere in Europe, anywhere in North America, and anywhere in Asia is kind of off limits and unsafe. Um, even Africa, like Northern Africa, there was a lot of battles and stuff fought in North mm. Africa. So really you don't – that, that – eliminates a lot of places that you can go to that that wouldn't really know or understand it. You have to remember this is back in 1945. So if a country wasn't involved in World War II, they probably really wouldn't know much about it. Right. So going to the southern tip of South America, you would come to a place where no one really knows who you are, even though you are a high-ranking Nazi official. You know, all you had to do is just take off your uh, swastika, uniform, put on some normal farmer's clothes, and 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 start whatever. And you would just seem like a normal immigrant. Mm -hmm. And German immigrants were really popular in that area as well. Um, mm -hmm. So I live in kind of central Texas as of now. And this was a really popular area for German immigrants uh, back in the 1800s. There's uh, places like Frederick's, Frederickstown New, and New Braunfels, mm -hmm. which are really uh, big, like, uh, were German settlements that just evolved into kind of these German towns. And so... Uh, German things are really popular there. Like there's a water park named Schlitterbahn. Mm -hmm. um, they have festivals there all the time. There's a lot of big like uh, schnitzel places and just a lot of uh, German uh, characteristics with these towns. And that's what you see a lot throughout uh, Mexico and South America as well is a bunch of German-influenced towns. Mm-hmm. But where it gets curious is where you mentioned places like uh, La Cambrasita and Berlote, Berloche, however you say it. Yeah. Which are two towns in Argentina. They're two mountain towns in Argentina that primarily speak German. Yeah. 
and they have a lot of German architecture and a lot of German influence as far as uh, just shopping and uh, and food and stuff like that. And it's just a curious thing how in the in the middle of Argentina, in the middle of this mountain town that's in the foothills of the Andes, it, there's a bunch of um, Germans. And a lot of people think when they think of Argentina, they kind of think of a um, tropical kind of environment. But that's not really what it is. I mean... Um, Argentina is pretty far away from the equator when you when you really look at it. Mm-hmm. So it's not really that tropical kind of um, place. It's it's more of and it's also where these towns are located is uh, in the Andes Mountains. So it's more of like skiing and uh, mountainous, which resembles Germany a right. lot. Germany's kind of like that too. So it just makes sense for for. Uh, them to kind of go to a place that reminds them of home. Definitely. And that's what, um, I'm sure you've watched it, but when, when Tim Kennedy had that show, um, Finding Hitler, and they were going and they were interviewing um, German families in uh, like La Camerceta and, and those areas, and you know, they tried to get into colonial and Dignidad, um, a lot of what these people were, were saying was... Um, that their family moved there for that exact reason because it looked a lot like home. Um, it, it felt a lot like, like you know, Austria and Germany. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, in that show specifically, you can see a lot of... They, uh, when they walk into the houses there in those towns... Um, the people are proudly showing off their uh, grandfather's mm-hmm. uh, Nazi medals and their uniforms and stuff like yeah. that. They have like iron eagles hanging all over the place. Because they just don't. And... Yeah, and it comes down to just the fact that they probably don't know. Yeah. They were just poorly educated on what all that was. Because think if if your if your grandpa's a Nazi SS officer. And, you know, he's your grandpa. You obviously probably look up to him or something like that. Right. If he's telling you all these things like, oh, yeah, the Hitler was uh, such a great guy. and mm-hmm. um, We were really proud of what we were doing and, and blah, 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 blah. Then you would idolize that kind of stuff. Right. And if you live in a, in a kind of a remote town in... Argentina, you probably were never taught taught any differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't know the kind of atrocities that were committed. But. So going back to um, Berlin in '45. So a lot of people think, hey, at, at this point Berlin was like completely surrounded. There's no way that they could have got out. Um, and a lot of people don't know that there's there's actually a tunnel that goes from the Führer bunker where Hitler supposedly was hiding. Um, and it comes within 150 yards of the, the actual the airport that was still under Luftwaffe control at the time. And there was, um, there was flights going in and out all day getting people out of there. Um, and actually, even the, um, uh, 
the field marshal of the Luftwaffe was personally flying Nazis in and out, or mostly just out of Berlin, getting them to these rat lines um, at the time. So even though Berlin is at this time under siege by, on one side, you know, the, the allied British, French, um, U.S. attack front, and then on the other side, the Soviets, they still had a decent control of parts of the city where they could still move around for multiple days. Uh, once they realized that, hey, this is the end, then they could see, okay, this is really the end. We've got to start getting people out of here. And then the Luftwaffe just went straight to um, flying, essentially, what were becoming refugees out of, out of um, Berlin. So there was like a clear path for them to get from yeah, where Hitler was if at. You have, if you have a bunker, an underground bunker, there's going to be an escape route, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, just think if our president was to go into some underground bunker or something like that, there was ob- there's obviously going to be a way for him to get out. And it's going to be secret, and it's going to take him to a place where he can escape quickly, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's ignorant, I think, to think that his bunker just was a be-all, end-all. Right. And I don't see Hitler as the kind of guy who goes down with the ship, either. Absolutely not. Yeah, no. He's going to dip out and try to survive. Yeah. He was a very... Resourceful? Well, that, and he was very um, vacation-oriented, kind of. Mm -hmm. He really liked to uh, live the high life Mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. So I don't think he would really be the one to go down with his ideals kind of thing. Um, He was really a cockroach too. Just stay alive no matter what. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, that's how he made it through world war one in the first place was Mm -hmm. he was shot in world war one and was like, yeah. Yep. Kind of did whatever he, that's how he rose to power as well. Was he Mm -hmm. uh, was very backstabby. Yeah. And he he was a politician is what it was. Right. He's a very good politician. But, um, and there's evidence of, I mean, um, the theory that Hitler couldn't have escaped is a little far-fetched to me, mainly because there's so many famous Nazis that did escape. Right. Uh, Adolf Eichmann Mm -hmm. was, uh, the leader of the SS, he escaped. Um, Joseph Mengele escaped. He was uh, the head of the Auschwitz uh, concentration camp and was a physician that performed experiments on um, Jew, the Jews. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry. God, drew a blank there. Um so I think I misspoke earlier. I think I said Goring was caught at, at a car dealership. I think that was actually Eichmann that was that was captured in Argentina at a car dealership. Yeah, um, Eichmann was captured and he was he f- fled to Argentina in 1950. So, okay, I'll back up here now that I mentioned the 1950 thing. I'm not saying that at ni- in 1945 all of these Nazis up and s- s- cut ties and split ways. There was probably plenty of them that that bunkered down in Germany or Austria, Poland, wherever they happened to be at, mm-hmm. for a few years and kind of waited for things to die down. Yeah. 
and that's when they got up and made their move. I mean, how long did uh, Anne Frank survive in that yeah, attic? Yeah, like four years, three or four years. Yeah, she was in. Exactly. So just think of someone with the resources like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're a officer in the SS, you're probably pretty. Um, you know some people, and you can grease some palms and stuff like yeah. that, and can probably easily hide out for a while. But yeah, Adolf Eichmann fled to Argentina in 1950. He was captured in 1960, and he was executed in Israel in 1962. Mm-hmm. Um, Alois Brunner fled to Syria in 1954 and died in 2001. So it wasn't just South America they went to. They went to the Middle East as well. Right. Well, uh, actually, Iraq Herbert was a client Cookers. state. Yeah. Explain that. Oh, no. <laughs> so sorry. Um, yeah, no, like Iraq, um, a lot of people think of, of your German allies, you think of just Italy and Japan, but they had so many client states, states that were essentially ran by the German, because you still have to think about colonialism at this time. We're not too far from colonialism, and where a lot of German influence is still present in places, you know, Iraq was a client state, Albania, Moldova, um, Croatia. There was all kinds of client states that was essentially ran by Germany. Um, And they were hiding these people because they still had some allegiance because they had helped them build up all of this money and things that the Nazis had stolen in their conquest of Europe. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's just, uh, and the fact that we ourselves, um, took us and, uh, the Soviet Soviet Union both took Nazi scientists Mm -hmm. out of Germany and brought them to the United States and to, to Russia. Um, I've mentioned it once already, but Warner von Braun, the head of NASA, was a Nazi. Yeah. He, like, he was a Nazi. <laughs> That's why whenever so, Alex Jones goes on his crazy rants, uh, he always says that, you know, the Nazis uh, essentially just are NASA, and NASA's like a, a shadow government. Because we brought all these people in, you know, the Germans had these amazing, the V3 rockets that were hitting England from Germany, you know, and like, hey, we can use these to go to space. And so we took all these Germans and put them in governmental roles that then gave them a little bit of leeway, you know, and it's not just scientists too. You have to think about like the Gestapo. We took a lot of people from the Gestapo to form the Central Intelligence Agency. And morph the OSS into the CIA. They're just... Some shady stuff, man. Yeah, we we took a lot of... I mean, because the Nazis were very good at what they did, honestly. Yeah. I mean, they... They took over an entire country, convinced... Um, not only their country, but many other people. There was Nazi sympathizers in America at the time. Mm. I mean, before we went to war with them, there was people that were on their side. Yeah. Um, 
so it's just not like they had they had plenty of friends they had plenty of influence they were good at what they did so it made <laughs> sense to kind of take their ideas and their scientists uh, because that's something they ex- excelled at, especially was their science and technology. The Tiger tank is, at that time, was one of the greatest advances in weaponry ever. Uh, like I said already, the German U-boat was the top-notch sub of the time. I think the only reason we won against we won the tank battle is because we just made a hell of a lot more of them. Like Shermans were easy and cheap to make, and we printed them like money and that's the reason we won because we outnumbered them but anyways oh yeah um, and we just had we had the bodies they didn't have the bodies i mean at the, at the end yeah. of it they were putting the hitler youth on the front line because they had no bodies left but if you want to look into this more you can uh yeah look up operation paperclip was the name of it um over 1600 german scientists engineers and technicians were brought over to the United States and employed by the U.S. government. And this wasn't just right at the end of the... I mean, this uh, Operation Paperclip lasted until 1959. So we just kept bringing... That's a lot of people. 1,600 people? Anybody that wasn't arrested for war crimes, we brought over. Yeah. You know, anybody that the... um, Ah, what's their names? I'm having a, I'm drawing a lot of blanks today. Sorry. Mas- the Mossad. Anybody that the Soviets didn't take, oh, we tried Soviets. to take. But that's another thing too is the counterintelligence core mm-hmm. uh, that we have, which is basically the, the our CIA now. Yeah. Um. Recruited a bunch of Nazis as well. Uh, one of them was. Uh, one of the guys that escaped to Argentina. Let's find his name. Klaus Barbie. Uh, he fled to Bolivia in 1951 with the help of the United States. So he escaped war crimes and he escaped punishment, basically, um, with the help of the United States because he was used by the counterintelligence corps to hunt down Nazis. Yeah. Um, so, um Otto Skarinski, same thing. Friends. Yeah, you know, there's, um, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of the high ranking ones that, mm-hmm. that escaped. I mean, whether we want to admit it or not, and, yeah. But a lot of them were hunted down by, by um, Mossad. I'm glad you mentioned him. Yeah. But uh, Mossad actually sent out because uh, if you don't know what Mossad is it's kind of like Israel's CIA it's their intelligence agency Um, and that's what they did after World War II was hunt down Nazis that escaped yeah and you know one of the funniest things about that I not and I love this story I know we're kind of straying from Hitler but we're staying in the overall topic here Um, Otto Skorinci I don't know if you know who that is but he actually he was a Nazi, uh, a colonel in the um, German infantry. He was in the Waffen-SS, a lieutenant colonel, I'm sorry. But Mossad actually ended up um, recruiting this guy to go kill other Nazis. Crazy story. So, like, they ended up bringing this guy on board 
to go after other knights. This guy had a he had the knight's cross of the iron cross. If you know what that is, it's like a huge medal. He actually um, personally led the rescue operation that rescued uh, Benito Mussolini um, whenever he got captured. And somehow Mossad ends up with this guy on their team hunting Nazis. It's just a crazy world. That that whole time, there's so much of a power vacuum created whenever the Germans fell apart that a lot of weird things happened and were allowed to happen. Yeah. A lot of those guys were just scrambling to stay alive. Yeah. So they were willing to do just about anything. I mean, um, most Nazis, most high-ranking Nazis that really did something like that um, were captured and they were pun- they were put on war crimes, and a lot of them were executed um, for what they did because they did horrific shit. But um, we're kind of about conspiracies here, so I want to get into a little bit of conspiracy on this. And that's the fact. I didn't want to say sorry. I didn't mean to put fact in there because I'm talking conspiracy. But and that's the idea that the theory that the Vatican and the Catholic Church actually helped these Nazis escape because you know the the Nazis main target was Jews and Judaism and that's kind of the natural enemy of Catholicism Mm -hmm. as well um, and Hitler actually used that as an excuse for what he did, was saying that it was God's wishes to kill Jews because they killed Jesus or yep. whatever. So there's belief that actually the Vatican blessed off on these rat lines and actually helped build these rat lines and help fund the smuggling of um, the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And there was actually uh, some bishop or something like that that helped. And there's a no sighting. There's a sighting of Hitler, a reported sighting. Bishop I'm sorry. Hudal. That was in it. That was actually took place. Uh, took place in a in a monastery, I believe, in a Catholic monastery. I'll have to look up the yeah. exact. And on I that. mean, I, we can get into this another time, but. I think the Catholic Church is into some pretty shady shit anyways. I don't disagree with you there. I think that group of people has been a source of power way too long and um, that it's corrupted very deeply. But, uh, yeah, so I I, I really do believe that. I mean, I think that they probably had a lot of help from the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Um which was at the center of which is i mean the vatican is in rome right yes so so they would have been under and access that's where one control. of the rat lines went through yeah. i mean the yeah they were in access control um with italy and mussolini mm-hmm. and um they the the vatican sits in Rome, which is where one of the rat lines went through. One of the rat lines passes through Spain, which is a Catholic um, country. Yeah. Italy, which is a Catholic country. It just, it just makes sense to me. And then they go to South America, which is... 
Catholic. Mostly yeah. Catholic. Yeah. I mean, a lot of places were Catholic at that time, so I guess it's not really that much of a that that weird of a connection. But I just feel like there's a lot of um, weird coincidences there. Yeah, I agree. There, and like with every episode we've filmed this far, it's almost too many coincidences, right? It's just there's too much happening for there to too much smoke to not be fire, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you start connecting dots, it just seems like, I don't know. Like you said, there's sightings of Hitler. Um, even in uh, South America, there's sightings of him, supposedly. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he I don't think he lived very long after he escaped, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he probably at the most lived about another five or ten years. Yeah. Uh, because he was... Uh, he did have Parkinson's mm-hmm. and he was addicted to meth. Yeah. Well, nearly uh, all of Germany was addicted to meth too. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of their thing. Yeah. Was, uh, they would dope themselves up on amphetamines to fight a lot harder. Yeah. That's not like unheard of even in like history though, realistically. If you want to go yeah, back to like drugs Norse, have been, um, the berserkers Very and they like the Norse taking shrooms and going into the battle. And they did some sort of drug that put them in a berserk style, like rage mm-hmm. to help them fight better. I believe it was a mushroom, wasn't it? I I think I think they might have brewed or they might have made put it the mushroom this, into yeah. a into like a drink or something. They drink yeah. the drink and then it set in and they went into a, a rage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I and I think when you look at the SS, I can't the field SS field marshal. He's in. He ends up. He ends up getting captured. I'm sorry, can't talk for a second there, but he ends up getting captured and he goes on trial. Um, at what was those trials called? The I can't remember what they call them. The Nazi war trials. What were those called? The Nuremberg. Nuremberg trials. Uh, Nuremberg trials. Nuremberg. So, in the Nuremberg trials, he says that he smuggled Hitler out of... Um, out of Germany. Now, they said, oh, he's lying. He's lying. That's not true. Um, and supposedly proved that it wasn't true. However, I mean, he did say that he did. Now, that might have just been to create some kind of facade that the Third Reich wasn't dead um, and that it was still it was still uh, up and about. But I, I, that's just, I don't know, that's kind of weird. The whole thing's weird to me. He knew they were going to kill him over it, yet he still is going to say it, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's like so. What what's the best way to go somewhere else and start anew? Die. You know, it's it's fake a fake a suicide. Make sure the body can't be positively identified. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know. I've always thought that. I mean, I've always leaned way yeah, more like. I just don't to, think there's really a. Uh, 
trustworthy group that has identified the body. I mean, no. it was a bunch of Soviets, and then after uh, they finally gave the bones or whatever back, um, it was a bunch of old SS officers yeah. that buried him and re-identified the body or whatever and yeah. confirmed. That and didn't, didn't the DNA like, come back to like a 20-something-year-old female? on? Because the Soviets still have part of his skull, right? I think so. I think I think the DNA test on that came back to like a, like I think the UN or somebody did a DNA test on it, and it came back to like a twenty-eight year old female. I'm a... Yeah, I mean it's just, uh, I I think he, I, I I think he made it out. I mean there's just too much. There's too much question, like the fact that there is a question, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, anybody else you know, at that time, any anybody else who is that high profile would have like pictures taken and you know mm-hmm. all that stuff. But I guess it wasn't 1945. So, I, and no, who knows how many body doubles the guy had too? You know, if Elvis was able to fake die on a toilet and still run around America, what's to say Hitler? Couldn't fake die in Germany and run around Argentina. Do you want to talk? Do you want to talk about Elvis? I haven't heard the Elvis thing, honestly. I've never heard Elvis was still. I don't. Alive. No, don't give me. I mean, still alive. I, that's all you. It comes around every so often that there's like a homeless man <laughs> yeah. found dead under a bridge, and he he it resembles. What they, what Elvis would look like if they were to age him up whenever he died, and that comes that comes around every couple years. It swings back around. Homeless man found, or Elvis didn't really die; it's fake. And hmm. that's interesting. I mean, I've heard that before that that uh, that Elvis was still out there. Him and Tupac were just. Make an album somewhere. It's like Walt, like Walt Disney. He he's frozen on ice or whatever, ready to come back whenever the technology's there. I'm pretty sure he really did cryogenically freeze Which, himself, though, right? Like he was also a Nazi sympathizer, wasn't he? Yeah, that, that's yeah. one of the. Um, yeah, Walt Disney supposedly was a was a fan of fascism and uh, the Nazis. Well, you know, well, they have. There's actual animation from. I think. It, I think it was Donald Duck. He was working on a factory line, and he. I mean, he. There was Nazi symbolism. There was he done the 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 salutes, mm-hmm. yeah. and all sorts of stuff. You know, and it's strange because Walt Disney. Because now I might get my people wrong here. I know for one it was Walt Disney, but Walt Disney and I believe Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, were in the same. World War One unit um, that was an ambulance corps unit, if I'm not mistaken. So they they had you know firsthand exposure to the First Reich and you know um, the same things that that Hitler was exposed to at that time point in those trenches. I don't. That's kind of strange to me that that connection there. 
Is it Sam Walton in Warlord 1? Yeah. It's showing... When was World War One? Because he was born in 1918. Oh, then that's definitely not that. World War One ended in 1917. Yeah. So. That's definitely not Sam Walton. Okay. Yeah, no. He was... Somebody in, else famous was... He was an army captain in World War Two from 42 to 45. I was going to say, that, that sounded a little off, because I didn't think Sam Walton was that old. I mean... That would Walt... be a whole new coincidence to get into. Walt Disney... <laughs> um... Walt Disney and Sam Walton go to the same or in the same unit in the army. He was he was in the same unit with someone billion famous. dollar corporations. Yeah, he was. <laughs> Let me see who it was. That would be a whole new question that unit. I'd be asking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sam Walton was. Was he from? Anyways, Missouri? I think we're straying from the topic here a little bit, but yeah. Arkansas. Um. Oh, when he was five, he moved to Missouri. Shelbina, Missouri. Cool. All right. That's nothing to do with Hitler, but... <laughs> That's how this goes, though. We learned something new, even if it doesn't have to do with what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Someone is going to come out of this episode and be like, oh, I didn't know Sam Walton was in World War One <laughs> <laughs> With Sorry. Walt Disney. They stopped I'll, right there. I will figure out who he was in a unit with, because he was in a unit with someone else famous. But I'll, I'll update you when I figure that out. You still there? All right, we're back. Sorry, we had a quick little technical difficulty there. Um, and actually, while we had that technical difficulty, I figured out what I've been trying to figure out for the last 10 minutes with who was in Walt Disney's uh, medical ambulance unit with him in World War One, And it was actually, it was Ray Kroc, the guy who founded McDonald's. Um, they were in the same unit together in World War One. So, it was not he was Sam a Walton. You say it was a medical unit? Yes, they were ambulance Coincidental, drivers. the yeah. man... In a medical unit, make one of the most unhealthy <laughs> yeah, food chains. Killing more, yes, yeah, killing yeah. more people. Than anything yeah. else? Yeah, probably them World War One. diabetes. Yeah. So to roll back to um, Nazis, Germans in Argentina, kind of building a little bit more groundwork for that this was a place that Hitler could have uh, lived out the rest of his life. Um, one of my I don't, I don't. I can't say favorite because it's it's an awful thing that happened, but a story that I really like to hear about, and like to tell about um, from this whole genre is about Colonia uh, Dignidad. So there's actually a movie you can get on Netflix right now and watch the movie. It's called uh, Colonia, and it has Emma Watson in it, and it talks a little bit about um, this place. Okay, so this was actually. It was kind of like a con commune, maybe. Maybe a co commune is the right word. So it's compound. all... Yeah, compound. I guess that would probably be best, yeah. So uh, it's located about 220 miles south of Santiago, Argentina, and it's ran by a German cult. So there's all kinds of sexual abuse there. 
There's all kinds of like medical experiments being done there. So Colonial Indignidad was one of these areas kind of out in the middle of nowhere and out in the middle of nowhere in actually it, it was across the border. It wasn't in Argentina, but it was in Chile. But if you know anything about the two, they literally run the length of each other. Um, Argentina and Chile do. They're both neck and neck all the way down the down South America. Um, but there was actually a some Nazi scientists, um, doctors that worked in um, the Holocaust concentration camps that ended up living at Colonia and Dignidad, and they were continuing their experiments from the um, concentration camps at Colonia and Dignidad. And this is Paul Schaefer was one of, was one of the really big ones. Um, he's the one who who they actually finally did try for it um, for all of this happening when it did come to light that um, that all of this was going on. Um, and that was like in the in the early '90s that people realized, hey, there's a German cult experimenting on people in the Chilean mountains. Um, and whenever they did that, he actually um, he fled to Argentina, actually to you'll have to help me with the name the the village we talked about earlier, La Com La Compresita. La Compresita. That's where he was actually caught and arrested. Um, Paul Schaefer was. Then, in the early 90s, after this whole thing happens, Colonia Dignidad actually changes its name to Villa Bavaria. And, like, you know, German village, or Bavarian village. I think Bavaria means Germany, but... um, Villa Bavaria, and becomes a resort, a German-themed resort. Um, But it's still ran by the same cult, and it's still operated by the same families that it was operated by when it was founded directly after World War II. I think that a lot of it, a lot of what this is for me with, with that story is that I think it really speaks to what Hitler wanted done and what like Mengele was working on and what the whole occult thing that the Nazis had about them. You know, they were very into the occult. They were very into experimenting, into doing something that was out of the ordinary, right? And I think Colonia Dignidad really speaks to that. Um, And the fact that all of these villages and all of these compounds in Argentina and Chile all kind of come back to that really just it it goes back again to that's too much coincidence for me there's there's definitely this is definitely a nazi regime essentially in argentina and chile working together i mean they caught the guy from colonia dignidad at the place where um eichmann was living so there's there's too much going on there there's definitely a connection there. And you have all these people who were, they were all trusted advisors and trusted um, by Hitler. So if Hitler escapes Germany, 
he's going to go to this place where he has his trusted advisors and his trusted people around. And a lot of people think that he went to Colonia Dignidad, and that's where he um, lived out the rest of his life, was that Colonia Dignidad. Well, if you have the most famous Nazi and the one that could be recognized, you would want to put him kind of in a more secure location. Like yep. You'd want to put him behind some walls and kind of give him his little compound or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, did you, sorry, I was reading uh, some other stuff. Did you um, mention the little boy that escaped? Um, I, I did not, no. But you can go ahead and talk about him okay. if you'd like to. I, apparently there's a story about a little boy that uh, a, one of the women that lived on Colonia Dignidad, one of the younger girls kind of uh, met with one of the prisoners. Like the story is that they would take prisoners Mm -hmm. and kidnap people um, in Argentina to perform experiments on. And the story goes that um, one of the women that lived there kind of uh, had a crush, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, or fell in love, whatever, with this Latino prisoner and helped him escape, and they escaped together, and and that's how people found out about Colonia Dad was, um, these two, kind of brought it to light. Um, I don't know how true that is. I don't. I don't really know. I haven't done a lot of research on Colonia Dignidad itself. So that that's a pretty but. true story. That's actually um, that this, the movie I mentioned earlier, um, the Netflix movie I mentioned earlier, uh, Colonia, that is actually their story. The story okay, of, yeah, of those okay. two escaping, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and as far as the experiments go, uh, the Nazis, like you said, were very into the occult. Mm-hmm. They were really into, like, Satanism, um, summoning demons, some of them anyways, I'm not going to say all of them, because some of them were very religious people. Right. But, uh, they were really into trying to create a sort of super soldier and stuff like that. Uh, some of the experiments that they performed, and they did perform experiments. Um, Dachau is one of the famous concentration camps where they performed a lot of experiments. And uh, Auschwitz was another one. Or are those the same? No. Um, I, th- I think they're different. Dachau is different. Dachau is different than yeah. Auschwitz. I think Dachau has another name, though. I don't know what it is. Anyways, they did perform experiments. Uh, Joseph Mengele was uh, famous for performing some of those experiments. Um, Just to name a few, they performed experiments. They they would pick certain Jews out and uh, freeze them and cause them to get hypothermia to try to figure out ways to treat hypothermia. So right. that way their soldiers that were fighting in Russia that caught hypothermia, they would know how to treat it. Um, another one was bone, muscle, and nerve transplants. They were trying to figure out if someone lost their leg, could they cut a leg off of a Jew and sew it onto a Nazi to give him a new leg kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, malaria experiments. uh Nazis were all about the global domination thing. They were pushing hard into Africa. 
Um, malaria is a pretty popular thing whenever you get into Africa. Right. Um, so they were trying to figure out how they could treat malaria. Uh, mustard gas experiments, of course, they gassed millions and millions of Jews to figure out different kinds of effects of mustard gas on people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would make, they would force uh, Jews into drinking salt water to figure out the effects that that had on the body and to how to treat it. And uh, so that their sailors and stuff would be able to drink salt water. Sterilization. Um, they didn't want Jews breeding. They didn't want anybody that wasn't Aryan to breed. So they performed sterilization experiments. There, there's just ton. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Blood coagulation experiments on uh, different ways to stop a, stop bleeding faster. Mm-hmm. They just they did all sorts of stuff. Was it was it Mengele who was obsessed with twins? Yeah, uh, that's one of the kind of creepier ones. Was Nazis kind of believed that twins were like a genetic miracle, and that twins had some sort of Mengele especially believed that uh, twins had kind of a supernatural power, and that they were like more gifted. So Mengele himself would seek out uh, Jewish twins to perform experiments on them to try to figure out what made them different. Mm-hmm. Um, he w- he would like keep one in good condition as he like tortured the other, right? To see if the other yeah, could to see could if feel the pain. Other one would feel it yeah. to see if they could talk to each other telepathically. Yeah, uh, there's actually. Um, Accounts of him sewing twins together to try yeah. to create conjoined twins. Uh, he he was very demented, and uh, yeah. he had to, he had a weird way of trying to to look at things. Um, he's pretty out there, man. But yeah, so the Nazis were. It just fascinates me how scientific they were. Right. And, I mean, I guess that's one of the reasons that we brought them over during Operation Paperclip. But they were intelligent, and they were all about trying to find something new, basically. Yeah. Um, they were really into scientific experiments. Mm-hmm. Which is weird, because they were so religious, too. You know, right. Usually those things, religion and science, don't really go together all that well. Right. Um, you know, and that's like the seat the seat of the Holy Roman Empire. You know, like, um, after the fall of Rome and the movement around of the Vatican and all that, Germany becomes essentially God's country with Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire and all of that. So, I mean, like, this, that religious fever was really ingrained in all of Germany, Germans growing up, and just the history is all about that. It just yeah, it's very you see strange. a lot of that in Central Europe. Mm-hmm. I think um, Germany, parts of like uh, Hungary, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Slovakia, places like that. You see a lot of like the 
what it is is deep, deep-seated nationalism. Yeah. And I think that's where kind of um, this Nazism, Aryan uh, idea came from. Really, is just the really, really, really deep-seated nationalism, because these peop- these groups of people had be- had been a part of something larger for so long, mm-hmm. and when they kind of broke down to their own thing, they had really, really large amounts of pride in right. that thing, and who they are. And there's still, there's still civil wars going on about it today. Right. Um, Serbians, for example, uh, you know, Czechs and Czech and Slovakians and Romanians and Hungarians. It's just all through that area. It's a lot of um, a lot of deep-seated nationalism and yeah. pride for what you are, and I think that's where the birth of Nazism comes from really is just such a deep infatuation and a deep pride within oneself that you think you're better than them and them being, you know, uh, blacks, Hispanics and Jews. Right. No, I, I I agree with you. And I think that that all of this, you know, people might be wondering, how does it do with Hitler surviving World War II? What's this? All of this is, that fever, that drive that all of these Germans were feeling, and that sense of nationalism, well, that was that was Adolf. That that's how they felt about Adolf. That was what he brought to the table. Was that unity of all these folks? So when Germany is falling apart, I mean, these people are literally going to sacrifice their lives for him to escape and survive, and. People dedicated their entire lives to ensuring that these rat lines um, were open and moving well into, I mean, they were well into the 50s, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah. That these rat lines were operating. Exactly. Um, um, think of, okay, think of yourself, put yourself in the shoes of a Austrian family that, you know, you just live uh, up in the mountains of Austria or mm-hmm. whatever, you haven't really been affected by the war. And but you you know who the Fuhrer is, you know who Hitler is, and you're of course white. You're very proud of where you come from. You're proud of where you live. And all of a sudden, one day, there's a knock on your door, and it's an SS officer, and Behind him is standing the Fuhrer. Mm-hmm. What are you gonna do? You know, you're you're yeah. gonna do what you can for your Fuhrer. You know, your right. your God, your leader, your. And so, um, yeah, that's I I strayed a little bit, but that's kind of where I was going with all this mm-hmm. is the fact that there's so much pride in those people that they totally would have helped Hitler escape. Like. Yeah. And Russia they wouldn't have just turned us on him. Were the, were the enemy, you yeah. know? Yeah, exactly. Whenever, uh, whenever Berlin fell, whenever uh, the the Third Reich fell, it wasn't a light switch, you know. It wasn't yeah. like these people were under some mind control or something like that, you know. Uh, Germans didn't wake up the next morning and was like, "Whoa, we are under a spell," you know. <laughs> it it yeah. wasn't like that. 
it was uh, we had to convert them kind of into yeah the thought that it was a bad dude. And it's not, I'm not saying that all Germans were Nazis, of course. There was right. obviously – there was uh, Germans that helped smuggle Jews in and out of uh, Germany and occupied Europe throughout the whole of the war. Mm-hmm. But those people that were Nazis and that were proud to be a Nazi didn't uh, didn't just flip the switch one day and not become Nazis. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and there was – and just because – this is the moment that the German army as a whole surrenders. That wasn't the end of the war, right? I mean, that was the end of, you know, kind of like when Bush said, well, we've beat Iraq. Okay, well, yeah, we've beat Saddam, but we've still got all these little splinter groups running around here. I mean, the last German, official German military unit, um, Weidertrupp Hogden, Uh, didn't actually surrender until the 4th of September in 1945. So that's six months after um, Hitler dies. You still have active units, active German units fighting there. Yeah. That's crazy. The the Soviets kind of uh, pulled the trick out of Germany's book and out of the Nazis' book whenever they invaded Berlin in the first place. And they kind of just carved a straight path into the deep of Berlin and straight to the Reichstag Mm -hmm. and cut down the Nazi flag and hoisted up the the Soviet flag. They didn't really conquer the whole city. They just kind of cut the head off the snake in a sense. Yeah. And so that even within Berlin itself, for months after, there was still fighting going on. Yeah. Uh, with, like, guerrilla groups and stuff like that. So it wasn't just a day one kind of swap thing. But, yeah. Um, I was trying to see what the... It's just... It's just uh, I know I've talked a lot during this episode. People are probably getting sick of hearing me talk. Oh, you're fine. But I just go back to the these these little villages that are sprinkled throughout um, Argentina that weren't really like uh, the town of I don't even know Berloche. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It says on its Wikipedia page that it was established in 1902, but it didn't see growth until. It didn't see major growth until the 1940s. Yeah. That's when these Nazis would have flooded the area. Um, And it's just, I don't know. It's a beautiful place to live. I mean, why wouldn't you want to go there if you were fleeing from being captured and killed? (laughs) Yeah. I... And I, I really think that um, before, you know, if I'm if I'm about to take over the world, I know I'm, so I'm Hitler and it's 1939, okay? And I'm like, okay, here's my five-year plan, okay? This is, what I'm, this is where I want to be five years from now. I'm going to start thinking about contingencies, right? And I'm going to start thinking, okay, 
which I'm not saying Hitler was in the in the right state of mind either, right? But if this goes wrong, I need to have a backup plan, right? I need to have somewhere that I can go to get away from all this or my people can go. And I really think that even prior to 1945, they were developing these areas of Argentina and Chile as their safe haven. I don't think that they just like one day said, you know, Hitler's got the Soviets 30 feet from the tunnel and he says, okay, you know what, we're going to go to Argentina. No, I don't think that's what it was. I think that, that this was years in planning that they're developing these villages and these places as a safe haven in case they do have to run somewhere. Yeah, I mean, um, any good military leader is kind of going to have a contingency plan. Uh, right. I mean, you're always going to have a backup and a place to go, a place to run to if uh, it goes south. But um, I'm going to name off a couple random little things here real quick. I'm pulling most of this from... Uh, the show Hunting Hitler with Tim Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the Canary Islands, there was a bunker found mm-hmm. that um, had a medical facility on it. Canary Islands are off of Hitler Spain, would... correct? I think. I, think I know so, that yeah. it's in between Argentina and Germany. That's, yeah. Uh, so there, it's a yeah. Spanish, it's a Spanish island, correct? Yeah. yeah. So um, the Canary Islands, there was supposedly some secret tunnels in a, in a German compound that uh, had a medical facility on it, which is something that Hitler would have had because, again, I said he had Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. Uh, he needed medical treatment, and um, I won't get into the Parkinson's thing because that's not really a proven fact, but. Uh, you can look into that yourselves. But, um, and it housed uh, weapons as well. And also, there's a mansion in Argentina called uh, Casa Enalco. It's in Neuquin, Neuquin, Argentina. But it's a large um, mansion that has specifically German characteristics to do it as far as the architecture and stuff like that goes. Hmm. Uh, that's rumored to have housed Hitler. Okay. I didn't, I didn't know about that one. I, yeah, it's called, yeah, how do you Casa spell that? Inalco. C-A-S-A-I-N-A-L-C-O. Inalco. Okay. I'll have to, I'll have to look up that. Yeah, but it's got. Oh, the, okay. The, I do remember them going in his show. I do remember them going here. Yeah, it's got the the log kind of upper half, and mm-hmm. the bottom skirt of it is brick or stone, or whatever. And you see it a lot with. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's very uh, Central European kind of. Honestly, it almost looks like Hitler's uh, vacation home that he had in the Swiss Alps. Yeah, the wolf, um, whatever. It's called like Wolf There's something. Vacation resort. Prora. Mm-hmm. Is that what I'm thinking of? That may not be it. 
But anyways, there's a picture of uh, Hitler standing on like a balcony. Yeah, I know which one you're talking but, uh, about. Yeah, the, the building almost looks like that. So it was called the Wolf's Lair. Um, Wolf's Chess is what it was the name of it. It's the Wolf's Lair. That's the one you're thinking of in that picture. Uh, let's see. There's some more here. There's just a bunch of like random, uh, weird things in uh in in South America. Uh, there's random compounds and villages all throughout. Uh, in Paraguay, there's a militarized Nazi compound. Mm-hmm. Um. There's supposedly a bunch of, like, hidden treasures that have been found that have a lot of, like, Nazi memorabilia in them, like golden uh, eagles and stuff like that. And I think that um, I might might be straying or reaching here. And, And tell me if you think I am, but there's a lot of rumors of not even rumors, but theories, I guess, of Nazis working in both um, the South Antarctic area and um, like in the Arctic Circle area. And I think that being on the southern tip of South America would also have played a lot to that. A lot of people thought, hey, maybe they're going to... um, I, I don't know what the what the correct what's that called Cape Horn or whatever it was where we go around the bottom of um, South America. Cape Horn's in Africa. Is it Cape Fear maybe? Uh, I don't know. Honest Cape Hope. Cape Hope. Cape Hope. Um, around the oh, south there. Too. Is it? Damn it. Maybe I'm thinking of Cape Hope and Cape Horn is. Okay, yeah, you were right in the first place. Cape Horn is South America. Cape Horn oh, okay. is Africa. So, so there was a lot of reports about um, Nazi vessels going around Cape Horn um, late World War II. And a lot of people thought that they were trying to... And there was theories that they were trying to militarize um, South American countries and even Central American countries to fight to invade the U.S. There was a lot of fear of that. Um, during the late World War II uh, as like a kind of diversion. Um, but there was a lot of military movement coming around um, South, South America and especially Cape Horn. And a lot of people th- reached that as saying that the Nazis were doing things in, um, in the Arctic Seas and in, in South Antarctica, all of, all of that area. And um, I think that it might have just been more that they were going around to the to the Pacific coast of South America and going up into Chile and dropping off things there and prepping. I mean, and even in that Tim Kennedy show, there's now you might be referring to this with your Paraguay thing, but the there's like a drop point almost um, off of this beachhead. Where there, where I remember him going and finding 
um, a, a Nazi military compound that was on the beach and looked almost like a landing zone where they would be bringing in um, not necessarily people but materials to build a network um, in South America. That might be the Paraguay thing that you're referring to. Yeah. I've actually I've heard a lot of uh, theories about how the Nazis had a base in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And that they used it, they were trying, they were going to try to use it as kind of a staging point to uh, reach South America and eventually push to the United States. Um, also, just the fact that Antarctica isn't really ex- like at that point in time wasn't really explored or right. anything like that. And it really would have been a prime place if you're going to put like a secret base. No one's really going to bother you if you're in Antarctica. Um, no, I think they have found like a Nazi listening post in Antarctica, um, like a, like a radio. Yeah. Post. Like I really, I, I don't want to like say for sure, uh-huh. but I'm pretty like sure that I've, um, uh, that it is a, like factual information that there is, uh, uh, this is where the mediocre research comes in, but, um, yeah, no. So yeah, they did. There was, um, in Antarctica, I've got the, the, the backstory on it right now. They have found a um, bunker, essentially a small bunker. Not it was more just like a like a small outpost in Antarctica that was of German origin. Uh, the ship yeah. that went there was the Schwechbeland. Um The Schwechbeland is the is the ship that they took in 1938. Um, on a German Antarctic ex- expedition and established a small outpost in Antarctica. Um, and that would be like on the on the same side of Antarctica that South America was on, where you get that, where almost those two tips kind of get very close to meeting. Um, if you look on a map, that's, um, that's where that was established at. Yeah. So I feel like that would kind of be a... I mean, that would be an intelligent thing for the Nazis to do, right, is mm-hmm. kind of send ships down there to Antarctica. That's where they kind of stop in at, refuel, refit, and then they head up into South America. Mm-hmm. And then they try to recruit the United States' southern neighbor into attacking and invading. Yeah. Because um, that's ultimately what destroyed the Nazis in the first place was the fact that they were fighting a battle on two fronts. Yeah, and so if they would have done the same thing to us, that would have greatly increased their chances of winning. Um, right, and there was actually evidence of a Chilean um, attack plan um, that was unearthed. Uh, I don't really know where I've got way too many tabs open, and I can't figure <laughs> out where exactly I was looking from, but um. Anyways, it was uh, a, the Chilean like secret service kind of mm-hmm. CIA government agency, whatever, um, was was speaking with the Nazis, and uh, actually they devised a plan to try to uh, to attack the United States. Um, I, obviously, that never came to fruition, but there was definitely some uh, speaking between them and everything like that. And even Argentina itself 
was never it refused to um join the war yeah. until uh March 27th 1945 when it's that's, over yeah that's 30 days before Hitler supposedly kills himself yeah so of course they're going to that's when they're going to be like oh yeah we were on your side kind of thing yeah you know? exactly um they were waiting for a winner exactly the Argentina just had too many problems in itself at that point yeah. in time. Um, but you know, all of those countries didn't, none of those countries actually declared war besides Bolivia and Colombia. Not a single one of them declared, of uh, South America declared war on um, the German or the Axis conglomerate before February of 1945. At that point, in February 1945, you have Chile, Paraguay, Peru, Ecuador, Venezuela, and then you get Bolivia, and then in March, Argentina. Um, it's like almost they all decided at one time together, hey, yeah, we're going to go ahead and declare war on them. Well, yeah, they were watching. I mean, yeah. um, something obviously – I haven't brushed up on my World War II history in a long while. But something obviously happened in February yeah. of 1945 to convince them that, hey, Germany's lost. You know, um, Right. And who knows, maybe at that time that's when they first started receiving their first batch of Nazis that were fleeing the country. Right. So then they're like, okay, we need to yeah, um, create a cover here. And even though they declared war on the Axis powers, the Argentinian uh, president or dictator, king, whoever he was, uh, mm -hmm. I don't really know. They're kind of government at that point in time. But um, his name was Perón. Yeah. He allowed these people to come into his country. I yeah. mean, um, it wasn't like they snuck in under his nose. He allowed the Nazis to come in and uh, establish these communities and mm -hmm. to live their lives. And he kind of shielded them from persecution, you know? Yeah. Uh, he, he never extradited any of them or anything like that. They well, they, lot, they brought a lot of business, and they brought a lot of money with them. Yeah, I mean, they did too, and that's the thing is not the Nazis – the Nazis had gold. Mm -hmm. They, the, out of the, the places that they conquered and took over, they robbed them of everything they had. Yeah. And so the Nazis actually had a lot of wealth and a lot of gold. Um, as a as a, a group, as a country, the the Nazis were kind of poor. And mm -hmm. the fact that by the end of the war, they were kind of running out of money. Yeah. But as far as the people themselves, mm -hmm. like Adolf Eichmann and uh, Joseph Mengele, uh, Klaus Barbie, all those guys, they had their own stockpiles of cash yeah. uh, that they could definitely use to to go where they wanted to go and do mm -hmm. what they wanted to do. Um, but you know, and a lot of people any... say that they the, the U.S. military wouldn't allow these people to get away, but. You have to think about the time period here. So it's 
early 1945, you know, we get around to March and we get around to Hitler killing himself. Okay, we still have another war on. We still have a very, very heavy war going on in the Pacific. So we have to, I mean, instantly troop orders war. Okay, we've taken care of these guys. Get everybody going to the Pacific right now because we've still got a huge war going over there. So, because Japan doesn't surrender until September. So we still have exactly four months of fighting that has to be fought on the other side of the world. So in all of this confusion, all of this moving the entire Eastern Front over the Pacific, which, I mean, we really did. If you look at, you know, a lot of... Like, I remember in Band of Brothers, um, the TV show, those guys, a lot of those guys instantly, once we took the Western Front got... I remember in the in the show them getting dispatch orders to go to the Eastern Front and then thinking, was that is that really how that happened and reading up on it? And a lot of these guys that weren't getting brought home, they were just shipping them over, especially units that hadn't been in a lot of combat yet, sending them to exactly. the to the Eastern yeah, if Front. If you hadn't met your time or whatever, yeah. you had to do so many months, you know, mm-hmm. um, in country. And if you hadn't met your time, then you were going over to the other to the other battle. Yeah. And that's the thing is um, once the Nazi flag fell and, you know, it was like, ah, oh, the Nazis are defeated, we immediately picked up and focused on the other side. Yeah. You know, um, we didn't really care where the individuals went as yeah. long as the um, – The ideology was dead. Yeah, as long as the group itself was dead, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't care. I mean, so, and it's kind of like any war. That's why we're still fighting wars in Iraq, is because you can kill an ide- you can kill a group, but you can't kill the ideologies that create that group. Yeah, you can't kill breeding, and you can't kill this deep seat, like you were saying, this deep seated nationalism that pushed all these people to South America. And we had a lot more to worry about than just the. Japanese as well. Um, mm-hmm. We were not just because we were allies with the Soviets did not mean we were on good terms. Oh yeah, we were racing to Bo- to Berlin um, against the Soviets mm-hmm. to try to take it first, and to try to because uh, there were opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, we're a capitalist, free market society. The Soviets were communists. Mm-hmm. And even before the Cold War, and even before all that stuff, we were trying to keep communism in check. Yeah. Because communism is just a facet of fascism. Uh, they're they're one. They're two sides of the same coin. And so we were trying to take Berlin and take Germany and create a child of capitalism and free market. Mm-hmm in those areas instead of the Soviets were going to try to expand their empire um, and they were going to try to turn it into a communist society and make it theirs. Yeah. Which is why you have the Berlin Wall and two opposite sides of Berlin uh, that are complete opposites. I mean, one side was Western Berlin was you know, happy-go-lucky and everything was good, and Eastern Berlin was uh, communist. And yeah. Communist rule. 
know, and we had already had um, had I don't, I don't know if a hatred, but a disdain for Russians prior to World War II, because and not a lot of people know this, but we actually fought Russia, um, Russian communism, at the end of World War One, whenever. So I don't know, this would get a lot into communism developing, but between 1918 and 1920, uh, we launched two separate operations against um, Russian communists at um, Argelshek, that was in the European theater, and Valdeshok, which was in Asia, um, where we actually attacked Russia um, in, in, in 1918. Um, and then again in 1920 with Volschek. And um, the... Or Vladistok, sorry. Um, that's a hard word to say. But that was really a bad one for us. We actually lost a lot of troops. So we had a pretty big disdain for for them at that time. And a lot of that went in because we were actually allies with um, the Russian oligarchy that came before the rise of communism in Russia. So we went there to help the, the, the currently in power. Yeah. The currently in power Russians and it, the white Russians. Yeah. I I can't, I can't think of what their name is like Anastasia's family, (laughs) whatever, whatever their names was. Um, I think Peter, Peter was the, was the King's name, I think, but we went to help them. And then, so that kind of created this animosity that really you could say that was the the launch point, us invading, not necessarily us doing it in Stain, but the uh, the Vladivostok and the Archangel uh, invasions of Siberia and Europe on the Russian fronts really kind of created the Cold War because it created this animosity that we never really got to duke out. You know, we we never really got to say... Once that was put off, we never really got to fight them over it because, you know, that animosity was building. World War II comes along, and then we've kind of got to work together to create or to um, destroy a greater evil than each other. So, I th- I think that there was a lot of um, already deep seated animosity prior to. Yeah. Yeah, we just I mean we had a lot more on our mind mm-hmm. than. Um... Where's Hitler, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, we stomped out the fire, uh, didn't really worry about where the coals went. Yeah. Uh, so I just think that it's... Between the tunnel that was... Uh, between the fact that his body was caught on fire mm-hmm. before he was ever even identified, right. uh, the fact that no U.S. officials ever saw his body... Um, there was a tunnel that led straight to the airport where his personal private airplane was waiting on him. There's these rat lines that are known for smuggling uh, high-ranking Nazis out of Europe. Uh, Argentina is known for accepting these Nazis and not only accepting them, but protecting them uh, in the form of not extraditing them mm-hmm. to face crimes. Uh, Mossad had to personally go in there and kidnap 
and assassinate multiple ones just so they would get their uh, their justice. Yeah. Um, there's just too much too much that goes on. Uh, obviously, if Hitler did die in Argentina, I don't think his uh, funeral or whatever would have been a big nationally organized kind of thing. He, I think it kind of would have been swept under the rug. You know, he would have died peacefully in some mansion on the beach, uh, and they would have just put him in the ground honorably, and they would have kept all of his uh, stuff. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Casa and Alco? Yeah. I just said uh, and just there's just so many um, people still living in Argentina today in these Bavarian-style towns that speak German. Mm-hmm. Like, that's their primary language. That's the only language they know. Uh, and they're proud of their Nazi heritage. Like, they're proud of their grandpa's war medals. And they're proud of the Nazi flag and the Nazi uniform and stuff like that. So it just all lines up too perfectly. I I completely agree, and and I know we're we're winding down, and I'm about to pull. I completely forgot about this, and and I hate to do this so late in, in this podcast, but I'm going to pull it out because we can't not talk about it. Um, a lot of people don't know this, and a lot of people think that again, this is kind of a a conspiracy theory. The FBI actually had active case files um, and was actively hunting Hitler. In the 50s and 60s. Um, They were... They were looking... They they had reports that um, Hitler had escaped to Argentina. And um, they had a witness that said they helped him... um, They helped them unload his plane when it landed. uh, So on and so forth. And... I mean... The FBI thought this was a, a real enough thing to actually create a, cra- a case file on it. And it's been declassified since then. You can read the case file up about it. And they were gathering, they might not have been as much actively searching for Hitler, but they were gathering information and keeping tabs on the fact that Hitler could be in South America. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's that far of a stretch to believe. Uh, I think we've talked about some crazier stuff on here, such as interdimensional aliens and the mm-hmm. fact that... Uh, yeah, I won't get into it again, because then I'll go on another rant. But um, I think it's a very good possibility, uh, just the fact that there is so many Nazis that escaped and went on to leave, live happy... Uh, successful lives. I mean, look at Warner von Braun. He he became the head of NASA for God's sake. Yeah. Like the dude, after being a Nazi millionaire, came over to America and lived the American dream. Yeah. I mean, uh, it just makes it makes too much sense. It does. It really does. And if you think about this, so all of these scientists, these individuals that have Nazi background who have sworn their allegiance to Hitler, they then come to the U.S., they achieve high-ranking positions within the U.S., who's to say that they didn't in turn say, okay, we need to turn a blind eye on this town in Argentina because there's nothing there we need to worry about. 
Yeah. Exactly. I mean, um, it could have been known that Hitler escaped, and maybe they just knew that he wouldn't live very long to do anything else about it. Right. And so they just let the dude do his thing, you know? Because um, I, I don't think he really would have been a threat, I mean, after what he had been through in the fall of the Third Reich and everything mm-hmm. like that, and the fact that he basically just had his life's mission ruined. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that even if he did escape, that he was into the... I don't think Hitler himself was as much into the things that his constituents did. Like the setting up of the um, experimental camps and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't think... The ones in Germany, yeah, he definitely had a hand in. The, but um, the ones in Argentina... I think that was more of an obsession with the doctors and the physicians that worked in those camps. Yeah. And not really the obsession with Hitler himself. I do agree. Um, and at the time, a, a, lot of, a lot of the U.S. actually did not think that Hitler was dead. Um, in, in the 40s, the, you know, 45, 46, 47, uh, there was a lot of interest in the U.S. on this exact theory that we're talking about today, that they did not believe that the Fuhrer was dead. They believed, I mean, for everybody at home who's made it this far listening, I just sent up a, a picture in our, in our Discord chat that we have while this is active. Um, and it is the, it's the front page of the Police Gazette and it looks like, I want to say that's September, I can't see the exact date on that. Um, 123rd year of publication. So this is 1955, essentially, saying Hitler is hiding in Bogota, Colombia. So, I mean, this is a, a reoccurring rumor. It's not just like in the last 10 years, someone said, hey, I think Hitler might, might have survived World War II. Yeah, I mean, it's a popular subject among historians um, mm-hmm. and and just conspiracy theorists. And, I, I mean, honestly, it's just becoming to the point of, well, like, it's not a conspiracy anymore. It's... it's um, conspiracy facts? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, there is obviously some people who think that Hitler would... Who, who Hitler did... Blah, blah, blah. There's obviously some people who think that Hitler did die in that bunker, um, and I'm just not one of them. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that he died either. CJ, what, what do you think? think? You think he died? What do you think, CJ? Yeah, I don't, I don't. Realistically, I don't <laughs> think there's. Which seems a little too suspicious, right? Like I brought up the whole burning the bodies so you couldn't positive, positively identify which, whatever the reason his, he'd wrote down reason for it. Uh, so that whatever one nation can't actually have the body or use it for propaganda or something similar to that. I just think it's that's yeah. kind of burning the body, positive, positively identify that's who that was. So just, I don't think that would have been the Russian mentality either. I think after what he did to them, 
with the invasion of Russia and like St. Petersburg and literally just targeting women and civilian, I think they would have paraded his body around that town like... Yeah, they would have put a head, his head on a spike, I think. Like, I, I don't think they would have burned him. Yeah. I don't understand why they would have burned him. Especially some, some low-level, you know, grunts find him that have fought their way from St. Petersburg to Berlin. Shoot, no, I'm carrying that thing around and showing it off like a trophy. I ain't burning it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um... Another question of of it is is uh, did Eva, his wife, go with him or did she die in that bunker? Did she actually commit suicide? And I think that because um, everybody in the bunker committed suicide, uh, and I think that Hitler actually convinced them to commit suicide with him. Mm-hmm. You know, they all drank the Kool Aid or whatever they did to kill themselves. And uh, that way there was be no one to say, no one to survive to say, hey, he, he left. He escaped right. kind of thing. Um, I don't think he trusted anybody enough to to let them see him leave, you know. I agree. Or at least anybody that was in that bunker with him. And if they're all dead... And there's a, bo- a body double there that's laying there that looks like Hitler that's dead. You know, you're not going to ask questions, mm-hmm. really. Uh, because he supposedly shot himself in the face, right? Yeah, I think they, like, they passed like, around a gun and all shot, shot themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, any well, kind of firearm no, He shot her, actually. Did he shoot her? I, I, thought, think, I, think, I think he convinced her to take a cyanide capsule. capsule. Yes, yeah. I'm pretty sure. That's what it was, yeah. She and took he, he shot capsule. his dog. He even shot his dog, yeah. Yeah, Blondie. Shot his dog, Blondie. Oh, what a dick. Yeah. Which they did just... They got married a couple days prior, right? Suicide yeah. by cyanide poisoning. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they weren't married long. They were yeah. together for a long time, I think. Yeah. But I don't think they were together. They were married for very long. They were related for their whole lives, but... <laughs> they, were, they were related, weren't they? They were cousins? That was his niece. It was his niece? Oh my god. I, I think so. I knew they were related, but I didn't realize it was his niece. Oh, I forgot god. all about that. Tell us a little yeah, bit about just, that, just CJ. Just goes to show you, you the kind of guy that... Other than I think he's... Eva. His half-niece. So. Oh, that makes it a lot nope. better. Uh, How do you get a half-niece? <laughs> It's your half sister's daughter. That's just a niece. <laughs> I would think. I don't. I would explain. <laughs> I don't know. Hitler, it's kind of like last night I had to reason. figure out what a cousin brother was. You heard of that? You cousin cousin brother. Got a brother cousin. Well, Roman Reigns <laughs> and The Rock <laughs> are cousin brothers. Okay, and it took me a long time to figure out what a cousin brother was because I thought The Rock had like some weird things going on in his family, but it's actually this holy Sajan thing that we'll get into another time. But if you're listening, Google <laughs> Samoan cousin brother. 
Oh, we're thinking of different cousin brothers then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so it's not like an incest type thing? It's not an incest thing. No, it's oh, not. Okay. It's, but I thought it was. Like, I'm like, Throck's incest? No. He's not. All right. Anyways, um, we're doing our usual thing, kind of straying off topic here. And I think we, y'all want to wrap this up? Yeah, we're getting real close to our time marker here. All right. Well, uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us on the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Again, thanks to you guys for joining me and having a conversation. And uh, we'll talk to everybody later. See you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I talked too much this episode, guys. I'll try to play <laughs> yeah. next time. Yeah, you wouldn't shut up. Oh, man. <laughs>